Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. Anyone in finance needs to stay current about what's happening with climate finance and regulation because it's affecting the entire industry. Stacy Swan, the CEO of Climate Finance Advisors, is my guest today. Her firm translates the data produced by climate risk tools for companies in finance and banking. The companies use this data for corporate governance, risk assessment, and sustainable business development. Stacy was my guest for episode 118 of the Sustainable Finance Podcast in May of last year. Welcome back, Stacy. We're looking forward to an update on the rapidly changing landscape of climate finance and regulation here in early 2022. Let's begin with an update on the scope of regulatory reporting, which in the UK, the EU, and in some states in the United States is moving from voluntary to mandatory. What does this mean for the banking and finance industry? Well, uh, first, Paul, I wanted to say thank you again for having me on your podcast. And um, the Sustainable Finance Podcast is an amazing um, uh, undertaking that you've been you've been doing for quite some time. And I learn a lot every time I I plug in and listen. So thanks again for having me. Um, thank you. So we th- this this area, in particular, on regulation and. Um, uh, regulatory reporting and and you know um, frameworks around climate related financial risk disclosure and management is um, is evolving rapidly. Um, it's evolving. It's moving. It's changing very fast. Um, and we are seeing. We continue to see um, movements within both the EU and um, the U.S. Actually. Um, uh, where we, where, where you know, um, climate-related financial disclosures are being um, put at the top of the agenda of what policymakers and regulators are thinking about um, at the moment, right now, um, the OCC in the United States has an open, um, uh, an open comment period for um, input on what they may want to prescribe or not around climate-related financial risk disclosure. Um, And I think we've seen kind of in 2021, the same kind of efforts undertaken by the SEC, Um, clearly in the EU and in the UK, regulators and and policymakers have uh, taken the issue of climate-related financial disclosures um, to the top of their agenda. Um, And I see this uh, momentum continuing in 2022. Um, In particular for banking and finance, I think those uh, regulators that that, um, sit or, or, or govern kind of institutions that are key to the financial sector, um, to the safety and soundness of the financial sector, are thinking about how they can um, at least start to um, track climate-related financial risks through the various um, financial institutions and, and banks and, and financial actors in, in, um, in, the, in the financial sector. Um, and part of that is really, from a regulatory and a policy perspective, those actors trying to get their hands on um, uh, data and information for them to be able to manage and then, you know, uh, p- perhaps kind of uh, develop good policies around climate-related risk management. Okay. So quickly remind our listeners who the OCC is and what they do. 
Well, so the OCC is one of the financial regulators here in the United States. Um, they are not the only one. Um, there's a number of different uh, entities that regulate um, different types of financial activities. Um, the, the OCC is the offer, the controller and currency, um, and it um, regulates um, financial institutions. I think it sits on a, it, it's regulated entities sit on about a hundred billion dollars of assets. Um, so, you know, it, it's a really important kind of entity that um, looks at um, certain types of banks and, and, um, and other financial institutions that uh, would be systemically important important, um, you know, in the financial sector. The SEC, as you know, regulates um, uh, publicly listed equities. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, there's all kinds of other different types of quote unquote financial regulators that um, look at different types of um, financial actors in the system. For example, FHFA, which is the regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, who are both uh, identified as systemically important financial actors, even though they're quasi-governmental, um, because of the housing market is such an important um, important part of the financial sector. And, you know, those types of institutions are, are, are kind of, um, are pretty important. Um, the CFTC, uh, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, um, which was the first financial regulator in the United States to look at climate-related financial risks, um, uh, two, three years ago, um, regulates obviously commodity futures trading and, and the like. So there's a number of different, let's say, let's call them kind of financial regulator actors. Um, in the United States, it's not just one. Um, and each of them this year, this year, 2021, and now into 2022, are looking at the issues of climate-related financial risk for the entities that they, um, that they uh, govern. So, Stacy, at the same time that the regulatory environment is expanding and deepening throughout the, the global economy, uh, there is a consolidation going on within the ranks of climate-related reporting frameworks. How do you see this development impacting the quality and the depth of corporate and therefore banking and finance industry disclosure? Well, it's in my view, it's a good thing. Um, there have been a number of different um, reporting uh, mechanisms out there, um, uh, reporting frameworks out there, and they've all served um, a really important purpose in terms of um, accelerating the types of, uh, you know, really important methodological work on what um, climate-related metrics, financial metrics need to be measured, monitored, and then reported on. Um, but there were some overlaps, and so some of this consolidation is going to help uh, harmonize some of those things and streamline. Um, I will say that the metrics around climate-related physical risk, um, climate-related physical risk as it relates to financial disclosure, are kind of in a much earlier stage of their development than those um, metrics and standards and re reporting frameworks uh, around things that relate to climate um, mitigation so um, and transition risks. So anything that has to do with kind of GHG accounting, scope one, two, and three, emissions, um, you know, and, and energy-related metrics has about 15 to 20 years of development in the community um, uh, ahead of those uh, metrics and, and frameworks that are around climate-related physical risks. Um, so having some of these re reporting frameworks come together um, is good from a consolidated perspective around the transition risk side of things, but also I think it helps bring to bear um, a, a larger group of people to work on, um, 
improving the climate-related physical risk metrics that might be um, included in, in reporting frameworks for, for um, climate-related financial risk disclosure. Okay. Now, again, I'm going to ask you to give us an example from the world of finance and banking of a company, and we don't have to know the name, but um, the types of physical and transition risks that companies in the world of finance are facing going forward? Well, the physical side is, is something um, that is um, often easier for people to understand um, and easier for people to um, get their hands around. We're already, we've already baked in enough warming um, uh, for us to start experiencing the effects of climate change. No longer is climate change from a physical perspective something that's off in the, uh, far off in the future. Um, in fact, 2021 uh, was the fifth hottest year on record. Um, we are, you know, um, we are experiencing and living through and, and observing um, the changes that, you know, a warmer planet um, brings to, you know, climate. So um, that is something that's easier for people to understand. Um, what would that manifest as in terms of a, an investor's portfolio, financial value at risk in a portfolio or in a bank? Um, the, easy, the easy example is to think of real estate. Um, real estate in certain parts of the world or in certain parts of the United States, um, depending on where you are, has exposure to different types of climate-related perils or hazards. Um, you can think of uh, sea level rise in Miami. You can think of intense storms in Houston. Uh, you can think of fire in California. Um, that um, those assets, those real estate assets, um, are value at risk. And so the question is, what is the probability that some climate-related event, acute event, might actually cause that value to be uh, either diminished or destroyed? Um, so that's that's an easy way to start explaining how climate, climate change can have an effect on um, an, a bank or an investor's kind of portfolio from the physical perspective. Um, you also have to understand that from a physical perspective, it's not all about ext extreme events. It's not all about storms. It's not all about the wildfires that might pop up uh, unannounced. Um, it's also about um, chronic issues. Um, certain parts of this country are starting to experience um, drought and water stress issues that can have an effect on, on home values, that can have an effect on operations of certain businesses. Um, those are chronic um, issues that might actually come about and affect kind of assets um, from the physical side. The other thing I think from a, um, a physical kind of climate risk perspective is to think about, um, okay, a lot of people can understand the physical impacts and the damages, but I think also people are starting to understand, and this has come about in the last two years, that insurance, which has been thought of as the financial mechanism to transfer risk, mm. is getting more expensive in some places, um, potentially getting um, less available um, for certain types of hazards. And that also has a cost um, and can also um, impact values. Going back to our housing, um, uh, our housing and real estate example, um, you know, re insurance costs for certain types of flooding and, and uh, extreme storm events in Florida are accelerating rapidly. Um, I heard Larry Fink uh, on a podcast last year in 2021, tell a story about a friend of his in South Beach whose insurance price uh, costs for flood had increased 30% year on year. That's an extremely high 
um, acceleration of insurance costs. So people are also starting to understand that, that insurance is not the solution. Insurance is also getting more expensive. And to the extent that it is, it's also producing kind of um, costs that, you know, most people hadn't thought of as a, as a direct link to climate change. Um, but to answer your question on the transition risk side, so transition risk for your audience is really around kind of the um, the the in the climate context is really around the the possibility and the the, the fact that we're going to have to transition to a net zero economy in order to uh, keep warming within 1.5 or two degrees, and that means that energy. Uh, production, consumption, use, um, efficiency is all going to have to shift into more, uh, more clean and green um, types of energy uh, production and consumption. Right? Um, what's going to happen in that transition is that a lot of very um, valuable assets tied to the fossil industry and and kind of ancillary kind of activities are all going to potentially experience some value at risk. And so that's something that investors in particular have been focused on for um, a number of years is, is there some value at, at risk in my portfolio to those things that I'm exposed to in the fossil sector? And so um, one could argue that's going to happen within a time horizon that is meaningful for many investors. Um, some people would like to think it's going to happen by 2025, 2030, 2035, 2040. If you're a pension fund and you're a long-term investor, those time horizons, the outer ones are really, really important. Um, they could also happen, that transition risk could also be accelerated by policy uh, directives, um, mm. either on the incentive side, meaning if policies are put into place to accelerate investments in clean energy, it could it could essentially you know essentially move kind of some of the value um, from fossil based investments into clean energy investments. Um, you know, the, there's also a lot of discussion around carbon pricing um, and carbon taxes. Those are things that could also have an impact on uh, value at risk for certain types of fossil assets. So that's kind of that that's kind of how investors think about transition risk um, uh, from that perspective. And uh, going back to the reporting frameworks and potentially the regulatory environment, you know, different stakeholders are really interested in knowing how exposed certain investors are to that sector, to those types of sectors and those types of activities, because, you know, it can give them a sense of whether or not those um, return expectations are being managed correctly. Okay, and also on the uh, once again on the on the risk side, as you mentioned, the, the insurance uh, sector is facing the, a big transition as well. In fact, I was reading a Bloomberg article this morning that was talking about the sixty billion dollars worth of flood damage that was done last year in Germany, and Munich Ray was saying that the, a significant percentage of this damage is not going to be covered by insurance. So that's just one example uh, of the physical risks that are, that are cropping up around the world. Now, when we talk about or look at these, these um, forward-looking platforms, is there one or two or several that you believe are more prescient or more effective in terms of the goals that they're trying to help global corporations with multinational supply chains deal with? Well, who's doing the best job of that? Uh, if you're talking about the kind of reporting frameworks um, or, or the kind of reporting uh, tools, um, you know, there. Let me separate the, the frameworks from the tools because they're two different things. Sure. sure. Um, I, I tend to be partial to TCFD as a framework. It's not um, necessarily something that everybody has adopted, but from a 
um, from an investor perspective, from the from the way banks and investors think, and also in terms of the types of information that it it um, as a framework wants corporates and investors and, and and banks to put out in terms of information. I think it's pretty elegant in the way it kind of talks about governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics as the four pillars of um, good climate related financial disclosure. Um, but uh, there's a number of other uh, frameworks out there. SASB has a good framework out there. Um, uh, while, while TZFD and SASB are not one and the same, they're all starting to kind of build off of each other. So mm. I'm not somebody that kind of will ever say one is better than the other necessarily, because there's a lot of similarities between them. Um, the question is, what are you using that information for? And so for a lot of... Um, our clients and a lot of the kind of investors that we work with, TCFD tends to be a really elegant way of getting straight to the point of where certain climate-related uh, risks and financial risks might sit. The other thing that we've seen, and this is also why I'm a big fan of TCFD, is that whether an in investor or a bank is itself disclosing around TCFD um, or not is, is separate from the fact that a lot of them are starting to use TCFD as a diligence framework. So, you know, they are also starting to ask their um, investee companies or their investee projects um, the same questions that TCFD tables. And, and so, you know, I think that TCFD for me is kind of a really nice, elegant, simple and clear framework uh, to try and get some of that information out. Having said that, that um, those frameworks are different from the data analytics tools. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked about this on our last podcast, the data quantifying climate-related financial risks is really tricky, but really important um, because uh, you have a couple of different um, things going on kind of when you're forward-looking in terms of uh, thinking about how to assess uh, climate-related financial risks. Um, first, you have the climate scenarios. Uh, then you have time horizons. Then you have value at risk uh, within a kind of parameter of your own in institution. So a lot of investors certainly have risk parameters. Um, they'll take only up to a certain amount of risk in certain sectors, or they'll have they'll have limits on how far they can go in, in with certain products or certain types of investments. And so they operate within a framework of risk themselves. Um, and they make their investments within that framework. And so being able to quantify climate-related value at risk or climate-related risks in the context of their use case is really important. So as the tools go, tools that um, can put out their, um, their uh, quantified climate-related risk in terms of dollars and cents, revenues, assets, and costs are more usable by investors um, and by um, banks and by, you know, um, certainly companies that are trying to make uh, credit and risk decisions based on the financial value at risk. Um, now, there's a big asterisk there, and there's a lot of people who talk about how highly uncertain some of those things could be. And for sure, um, you know, there is not one climate-related analytical tool that is, you know, uh, kind of the silver bullet and absolutely right on everything in the in the sense that you know down to the penny they will say you're gonna you're gonna have a hundred dollars and forty six cents at risk for you know 2022 for this investment no tool will do that but I'll tell you all investors um 
when they're doing their risk management, are all using models, um, different types of risk assessment models that are all operating under the same types of approach to um, assessing uncertainty, to assessing probabilities, to thinking of risk in terms of bands. And so a lot of the tools out there that are doing this from a quantified financial value at risk and dollar and you know revenues, assets and costs and dollars and cents are taking a similar approach and many of them are doing a very good job of it. Okay, well, that's really good to hear. Uh, I know that your work at Climate Finance Advisors uh, involves helping companies that you work with to map acute and chronic climate risks into their goals and strategy over time. So talk about the benchmarking and the resilience planning that this involves. Yeah, so so we actually do. Um, we you know we help our clients in a number of different ways. Um, anything at the nexus of climate and, and um, investment, um, we're kind of working on. Um, we but in the context of kind of climate related risk management (TCFD), um, we do do um, things that help. Uh, corporations, financial institutions, and other entities benchmark where they are, baseline where they are in terms of how they're managing climate-related risks, how they're capturing climate-related investment opportunities too. So, as an as, as a as a as an aside, I will say TCFD is often thought of as a climate-related risk management framework, but it also talks a lot about the investment opportunities that entities mm. could be making to address climate change. And many banks, many investors, many corporates, and particularly in the last kind of two years, have a lot to say on what they're doing from the positive um, perspective on capturing and opportunities to invest in climate positive things. So we help organizations benchmark, you know, take a pulse of where they are today. How are they managing these risks through governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics? Um, how are they um, in terms of the TCFD best practice or the TCFD kind of um, emerging best practice? So we give them a little bit of a score of where they are today and what that is relative to kind of TCFD's vision. Um, we can give them a roadmap and a strategy on how to cure that gap. So go from a, from their score today to you know becoming uh, fully aligned with TCFD and then even go further than that. So not just become TCFD aligned where they've incorporated climate risk management into their and opportunity capturing into their governance strategy, risk management and metrics, but also what they can do to then further enhance value or create value. Um, we think of these things as three legs of the stool. There's protecting your value. So in order to protect your value, you have to understand where you are. You have to kind of manage your risks. You have to capture your opportunities. But there's a whole bunch more you can do to kind of enhance and then create value. That's where a lot of our work on blended finance, on catalyzing investments in, in um, you know, in innovative investments in climate change can kind of really come into, come into play. Um, you know, we've done a lot of work around green bonds and resilience bonds and climate-linked securities. Um, we help a lot of clients once they've kind of done the, the spade work and kind of getting their house together, figure out what, okay, what is the leading in strategy in terms of accelerating climate investments? And um, and I'm happy to say a lot of, it, a lot of organizations are really starting to think about that um, in a more meaningful way. Good. Now, I'm going to ask you to address a specific example of, of how the work that you do um, for in the measurement and integration of climate risk and opportunity uh, disclosure manifests when you look at something like 
carbon offsets as a way to address uh, the, the, the goal of net zero in the banking and finance industry. How do you think or where, where do you think that type of measurement um, system is going to go in 2022? Well, that's a great question, and there's a lot going on in this space right now. So, um, and and there's some debate also in the in the climate world, in any case, um, about whether carbon offsets are actually going to move the needle um, because you're kind of, you know, you're promising to kind of um, not you're an entity that might be kind of polluting is buying an offset to kind of cover their pollution, but mm -hmm. it doesn't do anything to kind of reduce overall kind of carbon emissions. Um, at least that's the kind of that's the that's where the discussion is these days. Having said that, it is a really important market mechanism and helps a lot of uh, climate friendly investments um, raise money and monetize their climate impacts. Um, uh, so I see this kind of really picking up. Uh, the carbon markets have really gotten quite dynamic in the last six months. Um, and uh, we see that kind of taking um, taking off a little bit more in 2022 as well. Okay, great. Well, Stacey, I know there's so much more that we can talk about. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, um, always. Always, always. And so I'd like to hear from you now. Where can our Sustainable Finance Podcast listeners learn more about your work at Climate Finance Advisors? And how can they contact you with questions about things we've discussed on today's program? Uh, sure, Paul. So we're uh, our our website is www.climatefinanceadvisors.com, and you can always get in touch with get in touch with us there. Um, and and like I said, we do we do work on kind of all things at the intersection or the nexus of climate and finance, not just climate risk management and disclosure and benchmarking, but also the the really fun things around how to invest in how to accelerate and catalyze investments in, in climate related related opportunities. Um, and also, you know, uh, thinking about innovative ways to um, to look at uh, accelerating climate investments. Um, you know, there's there's so much work to do and, and all of it, um, uh, you know, is really, really important. Even the smallest the smallest uh, type of investment is as important as the biggest type of risk management. We need to do it all. And we need kind of um, all types of actors, all types of companies, all types of investors across the entire spectrum to um, to roll up their sleeves and, and start doing, uh, doing what they can to address the climate crisis. Great. Well, thanks again, Stacey Swan, CEO at Climate Finance Advisors. And to our listeners, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast.